Thanks for tuning in to Why Life Science, a podcast produced by the BYU Life Science Museum at Brigham Young University. I'm Katie Knight. And I'm Austin Lambert. Our mission here at the Life Science Museum is to inspire wonder, understanding, and reverence for our evolving planet. So with this podcast, we are here to bring you stories and interviews about life science research and projects going on in the College of Life Sciences at BYU and in the local community. Visit our website, lsm.byu.edu, for more information and to access notes from each episode. All right, welcome to the Why Life Science podcast. I'm Austin Lambert, joined with Katie Knight, and we are excited to have with us Gareth Powell. Gareth, what are you doing here at BYU? So I finished my PhD here at BYU, and I'm now a postdoctoral fellow in biology. How long ago did you finish your PhD, and then what was your PhD in? Yeah, so just a couple of months ago. So it's uh, Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, defended in November, and the diploma came through in the mail, first week of January, so... That's they can't a take huge it back now. Deal. Yeah, that's, that's exciting. Yeah. Very a, hot, a lot of work there. So we should call you Doctor Powell. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> I told everyone they're allowed one of those, and then it's back to Gareth. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, my research was focused on the systematics, phylogenetics, and evolution of a group of beetles called nitidulids. They're sap beetles. Most people have probably seen them and never noticed. They're totally cosmopolitan in distribution. Um, and the reason I'm most interested in them is ecologically, they are so diverse. They do everything. Well, it's exciting. You mentioned a lot of big words there. We're going to dive into then what that really means. Yeah, well, you say them again. <laughs> Phylogenetic. Systematics, um, phylogenetics, and evolution. So systematics okay. is how these insects are related to each other. Phylogenetics is actually visualizing and reconstructing that evolutionary history. So we're here in Utah, a state very well known for genealogy. And this is basically genealogy of species instead of individuals maybe in your family. Um, and then the evolutionary history is, is what we can visualize with that tree. is just what selection, what processes have led to the diversity we see now. And well, kind of wh- where certain characteristics showed up, right? Absolutely. Along yeah. that line. Yep. Okay, and then just one more. What does it mean to be a postdoctoral fellow? Yeah, so it's postdoctoral. So you have finished your doctorate. Um, but you're not quite uh, a professor yet or a researcher yet. So it's basically the same in medicine. People are familiar with residencies. So you have finished your MD. You are an MD in all intents and purposes. You are a doctor. Uh, but it's in that little period where maybe you're not trusted yet to make all the big, big decisions. Um, there's still some senior researcher kind of watching over, mentoring and guiding you. Um, but you are going out there and doing research on your own. Is there another process where you have to defend and get passed off or you're just kind of like okay I've done my postdoc now I move on nope nope this one is uh, is totally open-ended a lot of people don't do postdocs um Mm -hmm. it's becoming more and more common now uh decades ago it was probably rare to do one now it's rare not to I I suppose Um, a lot of universities looking to hire professors want to see as much as much data there on the page to show that you can actually do this job as possible and uh, and, uh, some good postdoctoral experience helps with that so you said that as a postdoctoral fellow, and I imagine as a, a PhD candidate as well, you had the opportunity to go out into the field and, and look at these beetles. Where were you going for your research? Oh, absolutely. I've been so lucky, uh, fortunate here at BYU. So I've been to Vietnam, Costa Rica, uh, Vanuatu twice, Gabon, and most recently Peru. I was in the Amazon a few weeks ago. Okay, so wow. I assume you're, you were looking at one group of beetles 
Is there anywhere in the world that these beetles aren't found? No. So, in fact, this group of beetles is one of the only groups that were found, and, and not naturally speaking, humans took them there, but in Antarctica. So they were actually uh, taken oh. on some stored <laughs> grains to one of the research stations there. Um, but, yeah, I say basically they are um, found on every major landmass, you know, except Antarctica natively. I think they were uh, extirpated from that research station to protect the food for the researchers that were there. Cool. So is that a, a unique characteristic about this organism? There are other groups that are worldwide in distribution. A, a lot of those groups are way more diverse in terms of described species. So things you might be familiar with outside, ground beetles, um, little predaceous things running around on the ground. They're everywhere. Longhorn beetles um, have really long antennae. They're associated with trees. So if you have an area with trees, you, you're going to have cerambicids. But both of those groups have tens of thousands of described species. Um, the group I'm focused on currently has 4,800 described species in the world. And, and so I think that's to have a distribution that broad and, again, an ecological diversity as broad as they do with relatively fewer species. Right. Now, that's still a lot of species. That's still, you know, 4,000-something species. It, some of the vertebrate groups we talk about, it, it's, it's more than a lot of those. But in the insect world, that's, that's a modest-sized family. So. And what was the, the name of the group that you're focusing on again? So the common name is sap beetles, uh, family Nidodulidae. Um, although the common name, as with many groups, is a little can be a little misleading. There's some species that are associated with tree sap, but, but the vast majority actually aren't. So. so, Gareth, tell us why you became an entomologist. What or why did you study science? So, the entomologist one is is uh, actually a funny story. I started collecting insects when I was four or five years old. Maybe we should have my parents tell this part, but. Not surprisingly, I guess I was a handful at home <laughs> and not much held my attention uh, over the long term. You know, we'd maybe get out the finger paints and that would buy my, my mother 20 minutes, I guess. I don't know. But you turn me loose outside flipping rocks and logs and going through the, the yard and that I could be out there for hours and hours and hours. Uh, and it never stopped. So that was back in the UK. Uh, my young childhood, I was in, uh, in England and Wales moved to the United States uh, basically for middle school, and a whole new world of diversity was opened up. I'd never seen a praying mantis before and saw one of those in Indiana, and, I, yeah, I just never stopped. So would you actually collect them and just, like, look at them? Or would you set them free? Would you make collections? Did you know how to do that at that age? All the above, I tried. I mean, a lot of it was just see how many things I could find in the yard. I, I mean, now looking back, it was four-year-old me was interested in biodiversity surveys, clearly. <laughs> I wanted to count how many different ones, and I'd run inside and scare my parents with this giant insect or spider or something saying, hey, I found a new one. We've never seen this one before. And they're <laughs> like, great, let's put that back outside, please. <laughs> but maybe not in the kitchen. Um, I, I, I kind of graduated from that to making collections. I would try my hand at rearing certain insects, too. If I'd find a caterpillar, I really wanted to know what butterfly or moth it ended up being. Um, and yeah, unfortunately, I don't have many of those collections still. They didn't last all the moves and around, you know, around the, the world and whatnot. But there are a few specimens my parents still have that I guess are from when I was eight or nine years old. Oh, that's um, so cool. Which is cool. But and so then how did that childhood interest and, and maybe as you were go growing up, how did that translate over to your higher education? Yeah, so I have a biology teacher in Shelbyville, Indiana to kind of partially thank for this one. Um, every biological process I learned about, I just, I think I would just ask, oh, does that also happen in insects? What is the insect version of that? And it was almost like I, 
it wasn't like I didn't care about the rest of diversity. I obviously did, but I was just so much more interested in insects that he would talk about bird migration and then I would end class or the class would end and I'd go, well, aren't there insects that migrate too? Can we talk about those? And so after the class was done, this was high school biology. He said, you know, you clearly, you know, entomology is actually a discipline and there's one of the best departments that, that, re- that look at entomology and educate students on entomology just up the road at Purdue University. And that was the only school I applied for. And I mean, that was it. So my uh, bachelor's and master's are both from Purdue in entomology. And then you came to BYU and did your PhD here. Absolutely. So my master's advisor at Purdue, uh, her name is Dr. Jen Zaspel, uh, were, she was uh, lab mates with my PhD advisor here at BYU, Dr. Seth Bybee. They overlapped uh, at University of Florida uh, working on insect systematics. And it was a crazy turn of events. I, Jen's lab got the opportunity to join Seth in Vietnam Originally, it was going to be a different student. That student had a conflict. Something happened. Uh, I ended up getting the opportunity to go. So I met three BYU professors for the first time in the LAX airport. And <laughs> we went to Vietnam <laughs> an hour or two later. And that was it. So. Wow. Wow. And had you already, like, committed to coming to BYU? Or you just on this trip to sort of help in the field? And then it led to more? No, I had not committed at all. I still had over a year left of my master's. I, I was in talks with other departments and other universities. Um, I was going to go elsewhere, and I just really hit it off with um, Dr. Bybee, and, and Dr. Michael Whiting was on that trip as well, and I just thought everything they were doing and the stories they were telling and the things that they were able to accomplish at BYU uh, were just so impressive to me, and uh, yeah, and it just worked out. And actually now both uh, myself and my wife uh, came here for our PhDs, so she's, she's finishing up now um, in a fish lab. But, but they cool. they uh, recruited slash offered both of us an opportunity and we jumped at the chance. So how is that with a, you know, a family with vertebrates and invertebrates? I mean, I know the doctors whiting <laughs> have the same issue. Do you guys get along okay? So luckily for me, we met during our master's both working on beetles. <laughs> okay. So we have that common ground <laughs> that started, you know, we started in the same then she, she got but a she's, backbone. She's, yeah. she's defected a little bit <laughs> yeah, now. Yeah, I'm going to go with defected over the... No, but, um, but yes, for her, I, I, I kind of... We explain it as I'm more of a um, an organismal uh, or like a, a system-driven scientist. So I have all kinds of questions that, that get me you know, going, but in the same groups of, of insects, I've always been interested in that group. Whereas for her, she's a question-driven scientist. So she has these questions of chemical and behavioral ecology and... You could pitch any animal on the planet, and she's going to think of an awesome question in that realm. She could work on birds tomorrow or lobsters or something else. For her, mm. the organism is going to be cool no matter what. It's the question. So, well, I think questions is a huge key to science, so maybe let's, let's talk about that for a second. How do you come up with the questions that ultimately lead to your research? Yeah, that's a great question. So, we, you know, we think of them as hypotheses, right, testable hypotheses and... There's a, a, a famous quote, I'm going to be, uh, you know, I'm very predictable in using it here. Dubchansky said, nothing in biology makes sense except in the light of evolution. Uh, and then our very own Dr. Whiting took it one step fur- further and said, nothing in evolution makes sense except in the light of phylogeny. So you think of any biological process or biological phenomenon, it can be simplified or, well, maybe made more complex, but it can be thought of in an evolutionary context and then most of these evolutionary processes can be thought of in a phylogenetic context so 
Um, you brought up morphological adaptations, features that evolve over time. Being able to visualize that character on a tree is a very powerful tool to answering a when uh, and maybe even a how or what led to that character evolving. And so that's kind of the, the premise for a lot of the hypotheses that, that I asked during my PhD and are still asking now. Um, how is the relatedness between these species, the, the evolutionary history and the, the shared genetics as well, led to the morphological and behavioral diversity that we can see out in the world. And so are these visual like things that when you're out in the field looking at the beetle, you notice something about uh, a beetle in Vietnam that might be the same as one that you saw in Gabon, and, and you're wondering how the phylogenetics connects that? Absolutely. So a, a great example was we were collecting nitidulids around the world and um, I just started to notice that some of them seem to have bigger eyes. Mm. And, and, I, and there's obviously variation. And then at first, it, it didn't really click as anything that special. You've got species with big eyes, species with small eyes. Well, then after two, three, four, five trips, other people collecting with me, it was what we thought consistently the species we were finding in flowers had bigger eyes. And the species we were finding in fungi or any of these other ways had smaller eyes. Uh, and so that led directly to a hypothesis. Can we see if species associated with this feeding behavior of flowers had significantly larger eyes overall than the ones that did not? And our, and our specific hypothesis was regardless of um, relatedness. So we actually knew that across the nitidulid tree of life, there's multiple cases of eyes getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So we were able to test it repeatedly, which is a really yeah. powerful thing in evolution to test repeated evolution of a character. Pleased to report that those results, uh, they're accepted pending some revisions in the journal Systematic Entomology, and we found that that absolutely was the case, is larger eyes are associated with that specific feeding behavior, uh, and that was true in all major lineages of the group and all major land masses around the world. So, so I mean, without getting too technical, can you give us some of the methods that you use to figure that out, to answer that question? Yeah, so the other thing that I was very fortunate to be able to do is not only travel you know, to the tropics and collect these things, but travel to museums around the world that have hundreds of years of specimens right there in front of me. It, a lot of times from places I can't get to or, or might not even exist anymore, you know, parts of Madagascar that have been clear cut, for example, or, or, you know, even parts of the U.S. that might be a Walmart parking lot now. Right. There are historic records of what used to be in those areas in the natural history collections around the world. And so we traveled to... Uh, I think in total I've been to 60, uh, low 60, 62, 63 natural history museums around the world imaging <laughs> nitidulid beetles um, with a pretty fancy stacked, uh, it's called a Vision Digital Passport Imaging System. And we sit there and take, you know, 50 photos of one beetle, stack them all up, make a really high resolution single image. And then we can use that image to make relative measurements of something like the eyeballs across all those species in all those museums. So that's a lot of work. Yeah, years. Took a lot of time. <laughs> but how fun. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's pretty fun. To, part of your job is to go to Paris, Prague, Rome, <laughs> London, D.C., Sydney. And go to these museums. Wow. And go to wonderful museums, get a backstage pass. You get to see, uh, you know, um, some people may not realize that when you go to the public exhibits at a museum, you're maybe only seeing 5%, 10% of the actual holdings of that museum. Um, the behind-the-scenes collections is where some of the real the gems are. 
I've gotten to see beetles collected by Darwin on his Beagle expedition in the wow. Natural History Museum in London and image those. He actually collected nitidulids on that expedition. Kind of so. like gives me the chills. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. It, and and it's actually very terrifying to have to move that specimen from oh, one yeah. box to another to take the photo. <laughs> you know, hopefully hopefully no one's over my shoulder and we're, I'm being as careful as humanly possible to not damage a specimen that, you know, is 200 years old and uh, and the other thing is we're focused on uh, what's called a type specimen. Um, so when you describe a species, the scientist that's describing that species has a, a, an individual of that species that becomes what's called the holotype. That is the name-bearing specimen. That specimen defines that species. So, you know, for T-Rex, for example, there is a specific T-Rex that is the T-Rex. Yeah. If that specimen gets destroyed we have to lean on the original description and would have to even designate a different specimen to be kind of the, the name-bearing specimen for that. And so with insects, some of these beetles have, haven't been seen again since the type. Oh. So you have the original type. It might be the only known specimen of that species described in, you know, let's say 1864 by Murray as a, as a famous nitidulid worker. And some of those species, as far as we know, we've never collected again. So they might not exist or we just don't know where they are. Yeah, for a lot of things, it's it's maybe they don't exist anymore. Uh, if if that habitat might be gone, if it was a really endemic species somewhere, uh, but with a group like nitidulids, it it's just as likely that no one's just collected that again. I mean, many of the places I go to, there's other researchers that go to those places, but if you're not doing the specific targeted collecting for those organisms, you you likely won't get those. Yeah, that makes sense. Is there any other experiences as as you traveled around, whether it's museums or in the field? Anything that, that stood out that you feel like you just want to tell everyone a cool experience? <laughs> yeah, I've had a few uh, very cool experiences, um, a few that, that maybe my wife wouldn't enjoy if, if she knew all the, the details of how dangerous <laughs> a couple of them were. we got to get that on recording. <laughs> yeah, we'll make sure just not kidding. to share this link with her. But no, there was one in Gabon. It was our last night in Gabon. We were leaving uh, really early the next morning to drive back to Libreville, the capital, and I had traps set up, uh, these little fermenting mixtures that I put in cups that work as a bait for nitidulids, and I had them set up all over the place. In all likelihood, I had too many set up for, we were only there for three days, so I was trying to hit it really hard. And so I decided not to sleep that night. I was going to go check all my traps throughout the night and then sleep in the car on the way back to the capital. And so I'm out in the middle of the night by myself in the middle of nowhere in Gabon, and I'm, you know, hunched over this cup, and it's an amazing cup. It's got maybe 100 beetles in it, 20 of which I've never seen before in my life. And I hear a snort right in front of me. And uh-huh. I have a headlamp on, you know, it's pitch black. I kind of look up, and, you know, through the, it's a tall grass area, I see, like, a water buffalo. And we'd been warned uh, earlier in, on the trip that, you know, lions, gorillas, all that stuff's all great, but the water buffalo or kill more people than most of this other stuff, you know, like stampedes, they're very, they're big, they're powerful. They're kind of, can also be kind of clumsy though. So I'd been told the advice I'd been given was just make sure they know you're there, right? Just don't, don't surprise a bunch of water buffalo. So I stand up and I start making noise, hooting and hollering or whatever. And I realize that that advice is great when you're on one side of the herd and the herd is in front of you and knows where you are. But I was surrounded. There were water buffalo on all sides of me and they want to be together, you know, herd mentality. And I'm currently breaking that herd in the middle. And now I'm making all kinds of aggressive noises, which probably isn't helping. Um, <laughs> luckily, my advisor must have heard this. Uh, and he shines his giant headlamp off the balcony of the, uh, or the back porch off of the little 
uh, place we're staying in. And he must be able to see the size of the herd and gave me the directions on which side was the quickest to get out of. And I just took off at a full sprint, unfortunately left the cups behind. Um, And some of the beetles made it into vials, but not every single one. And so that is that is unfortunate. But I was going to ask if you made if you got the cup out. (laughs) The uh, most of the beetles I think that I hadn't seen before made it into a vial first. So that that stuff's all back here at BYU. I I think you made the right decision. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that one was. I'm not sure how close of a call, but felt pretty close at the time. So when it comes to these beetles that you've never seen before, what's your approach? Are, do you take the task of describing those and making them an official species? Or, or are you just, when you're doing your research, are you focusing on you know, your questions, whether it's about the eyes or something else? Yeah, so it depends. I, I have, I've described about 20 species of beetles, um, new to science, uh, both by myself and with collaborators, awesome collaborators. And depending on the group of organisms, that's a big part of it. You, you kind of lean on other people. Um, you can't be an expert in all of these, right? I mean, there's 420,000 described beetles. So when you're trying to figure out if something is new to science, that's a lot of things to go right. through and check, right? And, and I've, I've told this to people before. Describing a species takes an afternoon, but figuring out that that species needs to be described takes years. Mm-hmm. And so for a group that I know really well or relatively well, let's say the nitidulids, I might know pretty quick, especially if it's in a genus that's maybe not tremendously diverse. There's only a dozen species. If I'm familiar with all 12, I've got something that doesn't match those 12. Okay, now we can start to really move forward thinking this is a new species. But there's also genera with three, 400 species in 100 countries, and I've maybe seen less than half of them. That might take me the rest of my career to figure out if that one's new or not. And so a big part of it is maybe there's a group where there's another scientist somewhere else that knows that group better than me. And so I can share with them whatever images or the specimens that we have. They can compare to whatever they've seen before, both in museums and in the field. You know, it's kind of a process of elimination until you there's no answer other than this thing has to be new. That's cool. It promotes the idea of collaboration rather than competition. You know, saying, hey, let's work together and figure this out where if we weren't talking to each other, we might never come to any realization or understanding. And we've tried that, whether, you know, just lack of access. We're very lucky now that I can hop on a Zoom call with three, four taxonomists in different time zones as long as we can make the time slot work and we can all kind of share screens and do whatever. There are countless stories of taxonomists um, back in the 1800s, early 1900s, describing beetles from different areas and not realizing that so uh, a, uh, maybe a German taxonomist described a species from the southern U.S., uh, a British taxonomist described a species from the Caribbean, and a, an American taxonomist described a species from Mexico, whatever, and it ended up all being the same thing. But because it was mm-hmm. so hard for them to communicate, you know, it, it was so much harder for them to send specimens back and forth, and of course they weren't emailing an image and having it seconds later to compare where that just happened, and then taxonomists later once they can see all of those at one time then we have uh, revisionary taxonomy and we can synonymize those species and see which ones actually still are different and which ones take priority so i imagine in the world of insects that's probably a common problem like beetles but also other insects as well is there uh, any type of effort to create like a central database or something that holds all of the the genomes or something that would make that process easier? I mean, that would be a huge undertaking within itself, but is there anything that, that's being worked on? So no one's going to believe this, but this wasn't prompted. Uh, so I'm one of the PIs on the catalog of life for the groups of beetles. 
um, I work on. So there are these funded projects and efforts to make these databases of all of the species in the world for given groups full, the literature records, the names, the taxonomic histories, where they were collected, where the types are stored, and all of that information so that going forward, there is kind of a one-stop shop. You think you have something new, you could go to that list, you could find out, okay, what nitidulids should be in Peru, right. for example, what was described from there before. Okay, it's pro- you know it could be one of these X number of things. Where could I find specimens of those? What museums have them? Uh, and then you could take those things on loan and compare them or even use it as an image database as well. So the, those efforts uh, are underway, but but yeah, for the numbers we're talking about, it's obviously decades of work right. for hundreds of collaborators, <laughs> and I mean, and just trying to get everybody to upload yeah. their information and yeah. So just for us, for uh, what's called Cucajoidia, so it's the the group that Nitidulids nest within, kind uh-huh. of their it's them and their relatives. There are about twelve thousand species in that group, and we have a team of I think about 30, 30 to thirty five researchers around the world that are contributing at a really high level. Uh, many museums involved, and we're just trying to get all the data centralized wow. and put into one place, and uh, we're still a few years away from, from that being finished, I imagine. Mm. For the benefit of our listeners, you said PI. That's not private investigator. What oh, is that? No, no, principal investigator. Sorry. Yes. Okay. So that's uh, that can be thought of as just the person who secured the funds and is kind of in charge overseeing and managing that project and making sure... Uh, that we are on task and giving us the best chance possible of reaching the goals that were proposed in the original research. So is this something that you would carry on after your postdoc, working, being associated with this project? Yeah, absolutely. So this was funded from in part by the University of Illinois, in part by Species File, and in part by Catalog of Life. They funded us on a couple of different projects, um, but I'm hopefully in it for the long haul. I'd like to see a Catalog of Life for all Coleoptera. Uh, I mean, that would take probably every beetle taxonomist on the planet to bring come together and, and work together on this. But but yeah, if we could have a one single database with all of this information for all the four hundred and something thousand described species plus all the thousands, tens of thousands of synonyms and these previously described uh, invalid names, uh, I think that's that's gonna be a huge thing for, for biology, for evolutionary biology, uh, for conservation, everything. Well it is nice to know that in in a time when it feels like there's not a lot of unity in the world. It's nice to know the people that are studying beetles are coming together. So. <laughs> we are trying. <laughs> That's good to hear. Oh, it's still very competitive, and there's still uh, there's still some fun personalities. But but yeah, I think overall there's a lot of collaboration. I, yeah. I've it's it's been awesome. I mean, ever since I was an undergraduate, honestly, I've had wonderful collaborators and mentors. That looking back, why did they give me the time of day? I'm some like 19 year old punk in indiana that thought beetles were cool but here we are some years later and that's uh, real collaborations have formed and hopefully good science comes out of it well speaking of collaboration i know you have someone we wanted to connect with are we yeah. ready for that absolutely now we have one of your collaborators here on the phone with us natalie welcome to the why life science podcast we just want to talk about your time in the field and and your efforts on collecting beetles and, and researching beetles with Gareth. Do you have anything, any fun stories or anything that you'd like to share? Um, yeah, for sure. And uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, me and Gareth have spent at least over 12 weeks in the field together. So we definitely have some stories. <laughs> so um, I did an undergrad and master's at BYU. And as an undergraduate, I took an entomology class taught by Dr. Bybee. And I was kind of just, I was taken 
by insects. Uh, I was fascinated by how diverse they were. I got super excited about them. Uh, and then there was an opportunity to do this study abroad that same year. Um, and Seth offered for me to come. And the study abroad was in Vanuatu. Have you already gone over where Vanuatu is? No, let's talk about where that is. So Vanuatu is a small island country in the South Pacific. It's located between Fiji and Australia. Um, it's a pretty small country. It's kind of like an archipelago. Uh, and I'd never heard of it before. It's like um, better than Hawaii, I think, because there's less people. But like, it's just as beautiful, you know, white beaches, pure, clear water. Uh, it's, you know, tropical island. So. Less people, but hopefully more beetles. I don't know. Yes. Okay. Yes. <laughs> a lot more insects for sure. If it was easier to get to, there'd be a five-star resort on basically every beach that we went to looking for beetles. So, mm. um, As an undergraduate, I did six weeks in Vanuatu. Um, and then after that, I spent a whole year as an undergraduate working in Dr. Bybee's lab. Um, and I worked on the fireflies that year. Um, we found two new species, which we described. Gareth helped me describe those. Um, and then the next year, Dr. Bobby wanted to go again. And so he invited me again and we got to go. And this time I kind of just barely graduated. So at that point, we knew I was going to start my master's in the fall. And my focus that time was on the damselflies of Vanuatu, of which we collected five new species. I, yeah, I finished my master's in two years. And now I am actually at the Cleveland Museum of Natural History working on my PhD. Congratulations. Thanks. So the first time we saw fireflies in Vanuatu was, I think, I think that may have been like an even more significant moment in my entomology career. It, it probably solidified the moment where I was like, yeah, this is definitely what I want to be doing. This is, you know, this is pretty epic. This is really cool. Um, I had never seen fireflies before. I, you know, I grew up on the West Coast. Um, I, you know, seen fireflies in movies. Um, and we had heard that there were fireflies in Vanuatu, but we hadn't ever seen them before and we were probably like what like three weeks into the trip would you say gareth yeah and we should also point out that <clears throat> while we had heard there may be fireflies there there was no actual confirmed reports or specimens this was you know fifth hand information from maybe something that glows and maybe it's near the ocean um, and so we were actually taking a bit of a risk having students that be their major project now i'll admit you know now we, we can say this this far after the fact, Dr. Bribe and I had backup plans for everybody in case that project <laughs> didn't work out and we, and we did not find any fireflies. But that was our hope is that we would go to Vanuatu and, and be the first to find these fireflies in a totally new situation. But as Natalie just said, we were several weeks into the, a six-week trip, totally unsuccessful at this point. We had been to two islands already with absolutely zero fireflies. And in fact, we had struggled to even find the habitat that we had been told might be suitable. And so here we are on, I think, the third island, Malikula. We'd been on that island for several nights already working on the west side of the island. We'd been to several beaches. And then halfway through the portion of the trip on that island, uh, we were able to secure transport to go to the totally other side of the island. And uh, that was this night. Yeah, and so uh, we call it Setla's Beach because the chief of that area or the man who owns it, his name is Setla. Um, and we got permission from him to um, collect on the beach. And we even asked him about these glowing insects, I think. And he had said like, oh yeah, I think I've seen them before. But um, a lot of times the translation isn't very 
good when we're trying to explain what the insects are. So we had actually said this to people before and we'd gotten confirmation. Oh yeah, we, we think we've seen those before and it hadn't panned out before. So we still were kind of like reluctant to think. And we realized later here. that in Vanuatu, they have some of the bioluminescent marine arthropods. Uh, the when a wave crashes, you can see the little sparkles of blue. And so, you know, we were a little worried that it was something like that. Yeah, so in this particular moment, we decided to split into two groups to try to cover multiple different types of habitat. So me and Gareth stay kind of on the main portion of the beach with several other uh, people who are with us. And then Dr. Bybee took on the other half of the group and went kind of, I think he went like further up the road or like around kind yeah, of a he, bend. He went up a river because fireflies around the rest of the world, most of them, you know, they like kind of wetter habitats. And so the banks of a river is a really good place to, to start. So I think he went back, you know, up the road and inland a little bit. We were sitting there and it was, uh, you know, like 15 minutes before dark. Oftentimes fireflies will start flashing like as soon as the sun starts to, to fully set, you know, as soon as it gets dark. Um, and we were sitting there and we decided that we were going to walk across the beach. And because, you know, when you're on the beach, oftentimes you take off your shoes, right? Mm-hmm. So that's what we had done, actually, because we had... We were like, let's, you know, just walk up this beach, take our shoes off, kind of, you know, stroll along the beach. It's so beautiful because we really were not expecting to find anything. So some of us walked up along the beach and there was a couple other people who sat back who were like just kind of like watching the rocks. And then they started shouting at us, like, look over at the rocks. And we were like, what? Really? (laughs) And so we like looked over and we didn't see anything at first. And then I think Gareth was the one who's like, no, like, oh my gosh. And so we took off running to these rocks. It was which maybe these the are... fastest any of us moved on the entire six-week trip. <laughs> <laughs> and these rocks are probably either dried up coral that has been uplifted out of the sea. So they're really sharp. Like you can cut yourself very easily on them. And we did, and um, we did. even just like with our hands. But in this moment, like we'd seen these fireflies, we didn't have any shoes on. I don't think we had, we didn't have a net with us either. We had no equipment and no footwear, but we saw them. I mean, we'd been waiting for 20 days at this point to even get a glimpse of one of these targets. This is, you know, part of the reason we're here in the South Pacific. And so several of us, Natalie included, just took off jumping from jagged rock to jagged rock, trying to catch fireflies with your bare hand to add a dimension of difficulty to this as it was getting fully dark. You're obviously relying on the bioluminescence, the flash of the firefly to catch them. You cannot turn your headlamp on because the light will make them not bioluminesce themselves anymore. Mm. And so we're doing this in the pitch black. And as it's getting darker and darker, we're out over the ocean now. These are intertidal rocks. So there's waves crashing around us and we're bouncing from jagged rock to jagged rock, trying to get fireflies out of the air with our hands. I feel like maybe BYU risk management shouldn't listen to this episode. <laughs> no, definitely not. Absol- absolutely not. <laughs> it was far enough up. Like we weren't in danger of falling in the ocean. It was okay. okay. Enough, you know, but we were definitely cutting up our feet for sure. Now the important yeah. question, did anyone catch a firefly? <laughs> yes, we got them. Yeah. I think Gareth caught several adults like that were flying prior to us getting a net. Did you go back later and, I mean, now you know where they are, right? You could go the next night. That's probably the part of the story that makes us look a little more foolish. Is <laughs> Yes, of course, we went back every night. We then, <laughs> we then cracked the code a little bit, and we were able to, with full 
footwear and nets collect them maybe i don't know what did you say natalie 15 more times uh, across four or five islands for the next for the rest of the trip yeah. so well the excitement of finding them yes and obviously that first location settlers place as natalie said is the type locality we talked a little bit about types earlier that is the type locality for one of the new species that's an awesome story really cool now natalie are you uh as dead set on beetles as gareth is I am. Despite doing my master's on damselflies, I originally had started out working on beetles, fireflies. Um, and yeah, I'm, I've come back full circle to working on beetles again. Yeah, you were a little lost for two years, but you saw the light. <laughs> <laughs> These damselflies are very, very cool in Vanuatu as well, though. So got to give them their credit. This could be an interesting question uh, for Vanuatu, an isolated place, you mentioned that it's hard to get to. That's why it's not overcrowded. One of the issues that we're dealing with in the world is this biodiversity crisis. How threatened are these species of of beetles or fireflies or whatever it might be when you're out in some of these places that are relatively undisturbed? Uh, Are they threatened? I mean, absolutely. I mean, we don't have any like formal study done to determine you know, risk assessment of these certain populations. A lot of these species are highly endemic, meaning that they're only found on one island. And the islands are very small. I mean, you can drive across them in a day. And if you're only found on one island, I mean, just recently there was that big volcanic eruption in Tonga where that entire island is now underwater. Um, And that happens in the South Pacific. So that happened a few months before we went to Vanuatu. We were originally supposed to go to an island where the volcano erupted during the planning stage and the whole island was evacuated and we had to find a different island to go to. Wow. So if there were any endemic species on that island, they're just gone. Yeah. There's a good chance that um, that, that could have been a, an extinction event at that level. And, and so, yeah, that's why it's important to find out. And with these fireflies, this was a really good study to do this was are there species endemic to the whole archipelago or to some portion of it, a few islands here and there, or are there truly species just known from this island? Because now we know the total extent of the distribution of that species is just that one island. And with these fireflies, we're talking about these intertidal rocks. So not only the whole island, you're just talking about the coastline, and then you're just talking about the part of the coastline that has these, whether it's limestone, coral, or volcanic rock uplifts, this intertidal zone. Uh, so you're really talking about a tiny, tiny, tiny area. Uh, and if you were to just do, you know, square meters, square kilometers, it's a minuscule area is the entire distribution of this taxon. Wow. Yeah. And I mean, although we talk about one to being undisturbed, I mean, it's developing country in that, in the sense that tourism has come into, you know, their site and they've recognized, you know, the potential opportunities available for them through uh, tourism. We went back uh, just within a year and I saw habitat that had been developed, you know, uh, put in new houses. Resorts are starting to pop up, especially on the main island. The main island, Afate, which is the capital, has an endemic species of firefly. And um, there are plans to build several resorts there, really close to habitat we've collected fireflies on. Fireflies rely on their light signal in order to reproduce. And so oftentimes the lights that are associated with these large uh, resorts can prevent reproduction from occurring. So that can wipe up a population very quickly. So it's not even just habitat loss, uh, light pollution for, for these species specifically. That, that's enough to disrupt, disrupt their biology. 
what can someone do? Like, what should we be doing to help? There was this effort, some of the South Pacific nations, these island nations got together to at least assess the need and some steps to preserve their reefs and coastal areas uh, because they recognized this was a huge thing. You have fishing pressures, you have building of ports, tourism, as Natalie said, and all these other pressures on this specific microhabitat um, of, of these coastlines. And they recognize that that's a really unique environment for, like I said, the coral reefs, fish, the diversity that they have. And they also rely on that. I mean, it's a a seafaring nation, we'll say. Fish fish is a big part of their diet. Um, They get a lot from the ocean. And so Vanuatu, as a a country, and many of the people we interacted with and the chiefs that we talked to and the families that we stayed with, this is very much something that's already on their mind. I mean, they, they may not look at it in a formal way like we do. They may not call it conservation but they are absolutely already thinking about, okay, every time we take off this part of the coast to build a port here, we now have less areas to, to fish or less areas to do this or less areas to do that. And so I don't think there's much convincing that needs to take place there versus other parts of the world. It's just a matter of actually helping them, uh, giving them the resources, giving them that data so that they can run with it and identify these areas of the highest risk but the most worth trying to conserve. We just recorded another episode for this podcast last week and talked kind of about this exact thing. And the collaboration with the people that live there is important to understand the history in their minds and then also bring in the the data that you're receiving and seeing how you can work together. Absolutely. And we experienced this over and over and over again. You know, we had these target organisms And once we're able to articulate to them, like, oh, this is what, you know, this firefly, then, of course, like, oh, yeah, I've seen it. They know so much about that stuff. I mean, this is their backyard, right? I mean, they knew everything about the fireflies at night and when you see them and what times of year. Um, It was really on us struggling to communicate that early on to find out how to unlock that knowledge, that native knowledge that they have. If I spent the rest of my life down there in Vanuatu, I still wouldn't know more about the insects there even. We had kids join us. Uh, I mean, actual kids, just, you know, little 8, 10, 12-year-olds running around the forest with us. They're better than we are at collecting these organisms. And I'm, I'm what, quote-unquote, trained in some way to find this stuff. But you show them what you want, and this is their life. They know how to go find it. What a cool experience for both of you. I think it's interesting we come back to this kind of idea of effectively communicating science. And, Natalie, I feel like now that you're a museum, you might have something you would want to add on perhaps just the importance of communicating science and and understanding. Yeah, that's for sure. That's um, one thing actually my new advisor always tells me is she's like, we publish a paper, right? And 10 people are going to read it and care about it. But when I um, do outreach events through the museum, I reach easily, you know, a hundred people in a day. And so, yeah, I think being able to communicate science to people who are not trained necessarily in the scientific method is super, super important because people do care about the environment and about these organisms. They just oftentimes don't know that there is a problem or even know that these organisms exist. One of my favorite things to tell people in Vanuatu um, when I was working on my master's was pulling out these damselflies and saying, you know, this is your this is your damselfly from your island. It's found nowhere else in the world. It's only found here. And they had no idea that that was, you know, they thought these were kind of common damselflies because they're the ones they see all the time. Um, so just, yeah, educating people in the fact that, you know, these organisms are here and they exist and they serve a purpose. 
uh, is very valuable and important. I think that's a huge point, actually. You know, everywhere we've gone, I think that's been a, a through line. I think there's this general assumption, and maybe even here, you, you know, wherever you are, you can kind of think about this and see if this is true. You assume the things that you see everyone else sees as well, right? Like this random, you know, for me, I can say this beetle in my backyard. People might assume, oh, that's the same beetle in your backyard if you're in Colorado. Maybe the same one in Nebraska. Maybe the same one in Indiana. Maybe the same one in West Virginia. But that's, you know, and that could be true. There are broadly distributed species for sure. But chances are that is not true at all. You know, you you drive a few hundred miles away, definitely more than that. You cross a mountain range. You cross a major river. You go the other side of a lake. You're going to see something different. As Natalie said, her damselflies were, you know, I'll give them credit here, were great for this <laughs> because almost every island had a different species or different combination of species. You tell someone that and they were so proud of it and so pleased. Mm. And, you know, that there's always this, I think everywhere in the world, right, I can use the example of, what is it, Wisconsin and Illinois don't really like each other. So if you can go to Wisconsin and tell a Wisconsinite, oh, you have these species that don't even exist in Illinois, they're probably <laughs> going to hold that over some friend they have in Illinois and vice versa. And that's totally true the world over. Some of the takeaways that I've had from our talking is just the importance of, of observation. I mean, there's so much going on around us that we don't know. I, I know that I definitely have not spent enough time examining the beetles. Yeah. Uh, I got to go out there and, and start paying close attention. And then if I drive somewhere, I should look for similarities, but also differences among species. I mean, thanks for sharing with us, Gareth and, and Natalie for joining us as well. Yeah. Thank you both for, for having me and letting me talk about beetles for a bit. And thanks, Natalie. Yeah. Thanks for inviting me.